0: Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, we're back in this wonderful book today. You know, I was reading one commentary this week. It's a brand new commentary I got. Uh, You guys know that I was on vacation in Idaho with my family and a little family cabin up there just fishing and picnicking and stuff like that. And uh, my dad went into the town of West Yellowstone. And it's just a little town right outside Yellowstone, right outside the west entrance of Yellowstone Park. Pretty cool area. And there's a little used bookstore there. And he loves to go in there. and He likes reading about the history of the area and cowboys and Indians and all that stuff. And and, uh, they have a Christian section. And he, he, he found a commentary on Hebrews there. It was written in 1967, and he grabbed that and brought it back to the cabin for me. And I've got 20 or 30 commentaries on Hebrews, but this is one that I didn't have. And I've been reading it, and it's excellent. And uh, in the prefatory notes there, in the preface, one of the things that the author says is this. He says, the book of Hebrews is a book written by a scholar to a group of scholars. Not only were they scholars, but the author was a Jewish scholar, and the recipients, he conjectures, were Jewish scholars themselves. Therefore, he said, the book is very hard to understand. And that is true. It is a difficult book to understand. Not because it's obscure, we do believe in the doctrine of perpiscuity. Perpiscuity is an outdated, silly way of saying clarity. We believe in the doctrine of clarity when it comes to the word of God, that it's written to men to be understood by men with the help of the Holy Spirit. So it's not that it's muddled or, or uh, difficult per se, but it's that it has so much imagery and precepts and truths drawn from the Old Testament. And so if you don't have a real solid working knowledge of the Old Testament, it's easy to get lost in the book of Hebrews. And there's a lot of background knowledge that was assumed by the author when he was writing to the recipients. Background knowledge that is often missing in modern day Western Christians. So for that reason, we need to navigate our way through this book carefully. That's why we've been taking our time. And so we're going to take our time as well today and just move a few verses into chapter 5 and do a lot of background work. Now, one of the main things that we've been seeing in the book of Hebrews is that it presents Jesus as our high priest. It presents Jesus as a high priest. And the moment you say high priest, the Hebraic mind, the Hebrew, the Jewish person conjures up all these images Of the tabernacle, and then the temple, and the sacrifices, and the altars, and the incense, and the holy place, the Kadesh Adashim, and the holy of holies. And all this imagery, and all this action, and all these works, and this ministry of the the priest come to mind. And what he's what the author is endeavoring to do is show that we have a better high priest in the person of Jesus Christ than was ever provided in Judaism. Not that Judaism was ever bad, but it certainly was lacking It wasn't lacking because there is inherently something wrong with it. It was designed and instituted by God. It was lacking because without Jesus, it's incomplete. Jesus is the telos, the end, the goal, the finish, the exclamation point on that entire religious system. And it really doesn't make sense until you get to the person of Jesus Christ. So he's going to continue to speak about Jesus being the high priest here in chapter 5. Now, we're going to get a little background info about the high priest. We already got some in the previous chapter, but we're going to get some more in the first four verses, and we're going to see four requirements for high priests in verses 1 through 4. As we read through, see if you could spot them. Hebrews 5 verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins As for the people, and so also for himself. And no one takes this honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So maybe you're able to spot four requirements for the high priest within Israel in the Old Testament there. The first one was seen in verse one, and we'll call it solidarity. The high priest was taken from among men. So there was a solidarity with all of humankind. The second point, we'll call it selection. He was appointed on behalf of men. Notice he wasn't elected, nor did he volunteer. He was appointed on behalf of men. So for the high priest, we see solidarity. We see selection in verses one and four. And then the third point is we see sympathy. The high priest was to deal gently with other people because he himself was a sinner. We see that in verse 2. So he was to be sympathetic. And then finally, sacrifices were required. The high priest spent a lot of time making sacrifices on behalf of individuals in the nation and the nation and himself. So four requirements for the high priest, as outlined in the book of Hebrews. Solidarity. Selection. Sympathy and sacrifices. I like to unpack each one just a little bit to enrich our background about the high priest, which will enrich our understanding of Jesus Christ. Solidarity. The high priest was taken from among men. This is important. It means that no angel could be a mediator between God and man, that there was no other being that could be a mediator between God and man in the Old Testament. It had to be a person. The priest, remember, represented humanity to God. And so he had to be a member of humanity. He had to be a representative party. And here's what we see in the Incarnation. We see this solidarity in the ministry of the high priest continued in the person of Jesus Christ. What happens in the incarnation is that God becomes a man. Don't misunderstand. The analogy breaks down at a certain degree. He was not chosen from among men. That would be a heretical view of Jesus Christ. That would be saying that a man became God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God became man to express, to show, and to practice that solidarity. That he might then die on behalf of humanity. Not only die, but that he might live the perfect life. And that we might come to be identified with him and in him and with his work. So solidarity, they were taken from among men, but in the incarnation, God becomes a man in Christ. And then selection. The high priests were appointed on behalf of men. Only certain members of the nation of Israel were qualified to become a priest. They had to be from the tribe of Levi, that was a priestly tribe, but also from the family of Aaron. All the Levites maintained the tabernacle and the temple, but only those from the family of Aaron within the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, could be priests. So it was a limited segment or sample of the population that were even eligible for the priesthood. And it was through that methodology that God appointed, determined who would be a priest. They had to be a Levi and from the family of Aaron. And so God has always been particular about choosing his leaders. We see this in the New Testament as well. You know, the ministry isn't something you volunteer for. The ministry isn't something you do if you have no other options. It's not a, voc- a vocational option for you. You know, maybe I'll be a fireman or maybe I'll go into the ministry, or you know what I mean maybe I'll be a chef for the ministry. I mean, let's compare the pay rate of these two. That's not the way it works. God has always chosen those who minister for Him and with him. And so it is today God chooses His leaders. Nobody says, "I'm going to go into the ministry. People are called into the ministry by God. That's the way that God does it. It's very clear in Mark chapter 10, when James and John come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Bold statement from James and John. And the Lord plays with them a little bit. Okay, well, what do you want me to do for you little guys? (laughs) We would like for you to grant when you come into your kingdom that we would sit on your right and on your left. One of us wants to be your right-hand guy and the other your left-hand guy. And Jesus says, boys, you don't know what you're asking. That is for whom it has been appointed. God chooses his leaders. We don't vie for position. We're not elected. It's not a popularity contest. God chooses his leaders. Old Testament, New Testament, yesteryear, and today. So there is selection. And here's what we see with the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was selected by the Father, so to speak. At least that's a vernacular that was used. We see it all throughout the book of John. We see it in John chapter 6, especially verse 38 and verse 58, where Jesus says, I was sent by the Father. And when his credentials were questioned, he always went back to that. I work only the work of the Father. I do that which the Father has called me to do. Understand, that's a great example of godly submission. Jesus, in his mission on earth, was submitted to the Father. But it in no way, in any way, shape, or form, at any time, ever spoke of inferiority. He was submitted to the Father, but he was wholly equal with the Father. He played a different role and he did what the Father told him to do and he worked the works of the Father. He was wholly submitted but altogether equal. There's a great picture from marriage because society today wants to pervert what it means that the woman is to be submitted to the man. They think then that the Bible teaches the inferiority of the woman. That's not the case. The Bible elevates the status of the woman beyond anything that was known in any culture at the time of its writing. Nevertheless, it says in the marriage relationship that the woman is to be submitted to the man. It's not a superiority, inferiority thing. It's not a better, not as good thing. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's a role issue. In the same way that Jesus was able to be submitted to the Father, and yet he was equal with the Father. We see that in human relationships, in marriage and within the church as well. But my main point being that Jesus was appointed by the Father for the ministry. So we have solidarity consistent with the priest and Jesus. And we have selection consistent with the priest and Jesus. And then we have this idea of sympathy. The priest was to deal gently with his fellow men because he too sinned. That's what it says in verse 2. Because he knew what it was like to sin. He knew what it was like to blow it. He could be compassionate to others who were blowing it. But there's an interesting nuance that we want to glean here about the ministry of the priest. The Greek word that was used here for compassion in verse 2 is matria patheo. Matria patheo. And it means, sort of loosely translated, to feel gently. It's one of these words that's taken from two other words. It doesn't have a perfect translation in our language. It means basically to moderate one's feelings. To deal gently. Here's the idea. The Greeks often saw virtue as being a position that lied between two extremes. That if if you were extreme in temperament or extreme on an issue, that that wasn't virtue. Virtue was, was being balanced between two extremes. And that's what this word is seeking to express. It seeks to describe the person who takes the middle road between extravagant grief and indifference when it comes to the sin of humanity. He takes the middle road when it comes to extreme grief, extravagant grief and indifference pertaining to the sins of humanity. You see, the priest because he, he made the sacrifices on the behalf of sinners, he was dealing with them day in, day out. And so he had to have the ability not to lose his temper with the foolish person who wouldn't learn. That's good, right? <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't to be overly angry when someone blew it repeatedly, but neither was he to condone their action. He wasn't to be overly angered, but neither was he to condone their action in any way. You see, here's what the effective priest would do. He would exert a powerful sympathy that would mold the sinner back into the right way. He would exert a sympathy that would mold the sinner back into the right way. It wouldn't just leave him in that place. It would accept it would love, he was sympathetic, but then there was a molding back toward righteousness toward the right way. We see Jesus practicing this in John chapter eight with a woman who was caught in adultery. Right? The woman was caught in adultery, and the religious leaders brought her, and they wanted to kill her on the spot. They wanted to stone her immediately. And Jesus had mercy upon the woman. And it's a complicated story, but everyone else ends up leaving. And Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? And they were all gone. He says, woman, then neither do I condemn you, but don't sin anymore. You see, he was merciful toward her. Woman, I'm not gonna condemn you, but he maintained the righteous ground. Don't sin anymore. You see, that was a virtue in the Greek mindset. It wasn't extreme. And we kind of need to have that today ourselves. You know what I mean? Because we certainly cannot be indifferent to the atrocities of the world. We can't be indifferent to the sin of ourselves, of our loved ones, of our church, of our community, of our nation. We cannot be indifferent to those things. But we can't be utterly overwhelmed by them either. And we're able to not be overwhelmed because we know the end of the story that Jesus is coming back and in the end, he will right every wrong. And and so we take that middle road of compassion, of being sympathetic and yet maintaining the righteous standard. Woman, I don't condemn you, but don't sin anymore. Jesus, as our great high priest, does this perfectly. That's just how he deals with us. He is so kind, he is so merciful, he is so sympathetic, and because of the cross, he accepts us, but then by the Holy Spirit and his word, he refines us. He accepts and he refines. So we see solidarity, selection, sympathy, and finally, sacrifices. Verse 3 tells us that part of what the high priest did was sacrifice, day in and day out. Sacrifices on behalf of the people, on behalf of the nation, and he had to do sacrifices on behalf of himself. Now, when it comes to that ministry of the priest, you, you don't want to relate it to the preacher. The preacher is really more like an Old Testament prophet than an Old Testament priest, Uh, The main ministry of the priest was to represent the people to God and to open the way to God and to mercy through sacrifices. The primary job of the Old Testament prophet was to represent God to the people and speak God's truth to the people. So a New Testament preacher would be more like an Old Testament prophet than he would a priest because that sacrifice component was taken care of by Jesus Christ once and for all. And so the New Testament preacher or pastor doesn't have to sacrifice on behalf of the people because Jesus did so once and for all, amen? Amen. It is finished, that price is paid for. But in the Old Testament, and even during the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, which was written before 70 AD, that is to say, before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, before the ceasing of the priesthood, there were temple services going on. There were sacrifices being made all through the Old Testament and even at the time of the writing of this book. And there's one significant point about the sacrifices that the priests offered for Israel that when we understand, help us to especially appreciate what Christ has done for us. And it's this. It appears that in the Old Testament, only sins that were unintentional Could be atoned for through the sacrifices made by the priests. It seems in the Old Testament there's only sacrificial provision made for Israel through the work of the priests for unintentional sins. That's explicit in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 2, verse 13, verse 22, verse 27. And there seems to be no sacrificial provision in the Levitical law for open-eyed, intentional, rebellious sin against God. I want us to see that because it's very profound. Turn to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15. We'll start reading in verse 22. It says in verse 22 of Numbers 15. When you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it shall be, if it is done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its libation, according to the ordinance, and one male goat for a sin offering. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, for it was an error. It was one of those things like we say, oh, I blew it. It was an error. And they have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them, for it happened to all the people through error. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. Look, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel and the alien who sojourns among them. Look, but for the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be on him. Wow. So God was very careful for the person who sinned unintentionally, you make sure that there is sacrificial provision. For the defiant, open-eyed, intentional, rebellious, disregarding the clear command of God, sinner, God made no provision for them in the Old Testament. In fact, he said that person shall be cut off from the people. It doesn't mean that when they moved their camp, they left them behind. Cut off means they were to be killed. Now, this is harsh. This is gnarly. This is a part of the Bible a lot of people don't like. I personally love it. (laughs) I love it for this reason. Because we in America have attempted to make God in our image. We like a God who's just holy enough to be cool, but not too holy to be scary. We like a God that is willing to fudge and to cut corners because we love to do that. The Bible presents a different God altogether. We want a God who is tolerant of sin. We want a God who's like a grandpa who'll blink his eye and sort of wink at it and turn his head and just bury it under the rug. That's not the God of the Bible. We have presented in the God of Bible in the Bible God who is altogether holy, who is absolutely righteous and who has no proclivity in and of himself to tolerate sin, and is under no obligation to tolerate sin in any way, shape, or manner. And the fact that he makes sacrificial provision for unintentional sin is grace enough, and mercy enough. And he says, when somebody utterly blows me off, and is in open-eyed, defiant rebellion against my clear commands, they shall be put to death. For the wages of sin is death. And I will not apologize for that. First of all, I didn't write it. Nor did I make it up. Nor does it need to be apologized for or discarded or discounted. God is holy. He is to be obeyed at all times at all costs. Now, a situation immediately arose in Israel where someone sinned defiantly. And even Israel themselves didn't really believe that God meant what he said. They were very much like the modern church. They were very much like the serpent in the garden who said to Eve, did God really say? Does God really mean? That's the mantra. That's the conversation of the modern church. Does God really mean? You know, I heard a great quote this week. It's by John Phillips. God's word is not given as a starting point for debate. God's word is given as a starting point for obedience. You see, the church has lost a lot of that. The church has made it a conversation piece and a member of the conversation. It is not. It is the holy word of God that is inerrant and right and to be obeyed. But even Israel had difficulty believing that. And so, look what happens in verse 32. Now, when the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Uh Uh-oh. Remember what God said about the Sabbath? Thou shalt remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You should do no work on that day. Homeboy's out picking up wood. (laughs) Verse 33. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Wait a minute. I'm pretty sure it had been declared what should be done to him in the previous verses. Verse 35, then the Lord said to Moses, okay, they begin to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with the stones outside the camp. So all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones just as the Lord had commanded Moses. They came around to obeying the Lord, but not before they second guessed for a moment, not before they hesitated, not before they went back before the Lord and said, Lord, are you really sure? And that's okay to do as long as your heart is in a place that, Lord, whatever your answer is right now, I'm going to obey. But even they themselves couldn't believe it. Oh, let's put them in custody. Let's wait a little bit. Let's see what the Lord says. The Lord says, what are you talking about? I told you what to do. You see, we don't view sin the way God views sin. This is atrocious to us because, quite frankly, we like sin. We like sin more than we like righteousness on many occasions. That's humanity. That's even many of us who are redeemed. We just seem to have an affinity, it's called the flesh, for and with sin. And instead of being appalled by sin, we court sin, we flirt with sin, we organize sin, and we strategize to sin. I know this because I'm a person. This is what we do. We are broken. We are fallen. We are perverted. And when God has a different perspective on something than us, we must yield to the fact that our perspective is wrong. And when we take sin lightly and make everything relative, we must understand that God does not see things that way. And that's what the law illustrates to us. It illustrates the holiness of God and the severity of sin. And then God did something cool for them in verse 37. The Lord also spoke to Moses saying, he's throwing him a little bone here. Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. So as to do them and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which, after which you played the harlot in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. He's putting them in their place here. What a neat thing that he gives them the tassels. Have you ever seen an Orthodox Jew and they've got the tassels hanging down right here? That's what those are the Lord gave them to remind Israel of the commandments because at that time they didn't have the written word. Okay, they didn't have Bibles that they could circulate around. They had the commandments handed down orally after Moses received them from Sinai as well as the 10 written on the the tablets. And so these tassels were a visual reminder and they were supposed to sort of hang down around hand length so when they were walking, they could feel and remember, wow, I better not go and intentionally sin right now. I realize I have a rebellious nature, but I also realize that God has given commandments. I can feel them hanging off my side right here. And, and I remember because he said, he is the Lord my God. Therefore, I'm going to endeavor today to obey. And if they blew off the commandments of the Lord, God didn't make any provision for forgiveness for them. Now we see this playing out in the life of David. David sinned intentionally with Bathsheba, adultery. And then David murdered her husband. David did these things fully aware that they were transgressing against the word of God, open-eyed, intentional rebellion against God. And David in 2 Samuel 12 got busted for his sin. You remember the prophet Nathan? Nathan came along and told him a little story and David was appalled that someone would act that uh, that way. Nathan said, well, it's you, bro. Now, what we need to understand is that David was heartbroken over his sin. You'll see that if you read the penitential Psalms, the songs of repentance. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, for example, of David. He was heartbroken after his and because of his sin. But he knew, because he knew the law, there was no sacrificial provision. So what could he do? Will we see David in heaven today? Yes. What do you base that on? The mercy of God. The mercy of God. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, that Nathan said, David, your sins are forgiven. The only reason they were forgiven was because of just the mercy of God as he saw his repentant heart. He had to throw himself at the mercy of God because there was no sacrifice. He couldn't just get a couple goats, a couple bulls, roll up, and have the priest do it. If God would not be merciful to him, he would die in his guilt. Nevertheless, it says in 2 Samuel 12, 13, that his sins were forgiven. There's no record of any sacrifice being made. And so we have this in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. David, it's his penitential prayer to the Lord after this sin. He says in verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 51, to the Lord, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering." Now we know that the Lord was because he established them. We already read in Numbers 15 that they were a soothing aroma to the Lord. But that was for unintentional sins. David realizes that he sinned intentionally. And so for that, there was no sacrifice. That's why he says that. And then he says in the next verse, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He was broken over his sin. He says in one of those Psalms that his life juices were wasting away under the weight of his sin until the Lord forgave him. And then it says, when the Lord forgave him, that he was surrounded by songs of deliverance Psalm 32 surrounded by songs of deliverance. He was delivered from the guilt. He was delivered from the condemnation and he was delivered from the shame. But it wasn't an Old Testament sacrifice. It was the mercy of God. But understand this, God does not extend mercy apart from justice. So the only way that God extended mercy in the Old Testament was looking forward to the justice of the cross of Jesus Christ. And because God is outside of time and space and Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain from before the foundations of the world in the economy of God, God was able to look forward to that atoning work on the cross and forgive David in his mercy and grace. And so we come to understand that what we have in Jesus Christ is far greater than anything that has ever been given to humanity before even to the Jews. Jesus Christ atones for Even open and rebellious sin. That is wonderful. That is glorious. Amen. So the Jewish readers of this book, when Jesus is being spoken of the high priest, they realize the limitation of the priestly sacrifices. Ignorance was pardonable through the symbolic act of the sacrifice. Presumption was not. And so it might help us to understand what unintentional or ignorant sins were. These were sins committed on impulse or in a moment of anger or a moment of passion. We understand this. When someone was mastered suddenly by overpowering temptation... But when that person was repentant and sincere and brought the proper sacrifices, the offense was forgiven. On the other hand, the presumptuous sin is cold, deliberate, calculated rebellion. And until Jesus Christ, there was no sacrifice. But what does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. Remember the goal of the author of Hebrews. He's trying to persuade this audience of scholars perhaps not to go back into Judaism. That was the temptation because their Christianity wasn't wasn't, uh, panning out the way that they thought it would. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were encountering times of difficulty. It didn't seem to them that the kingdom had been established. They were under the control and the persecution and the fierce wrath of the emperor of Rome, Nero. And so now are they beginning to think, maybe we made the wrong decision, maybe we go back into Judaism. And he's reminding them of the limitations of Judaism, of rather its incompleteness until the us the end, the goal, the person of Jesus Christ comes. And then in Jesus Christ, we see the fulfillment of the office of high priest. Nobody else ever did it right until Jesus came. And we have perfect solidarity, absolute selection, perfect sympathy, and a sacrifice once and for all. Now look back in Hebrews at verses five and six. Verse five of Hebrews. These are the last two verses we'll cover. Says, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, Okay, that first he is talking about God. God said to him, thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Just as he also says in another passage, thou art a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, now you're going to have to pay attention. Okay? You're going to have to pay a little bit of attention here. Melchizedek. All of chapter 7 is about Melchizedek and his relation to Jesus Christ, so we're not going to belabor the point about him now when we get to chapter 7 in several years. Then we will deal with him. (laughs) But I want you to see how astounding this move in verses 5 and 6 are. Here's why. One of the things every Jew knew about the high priest was that they had to be from one of the 12 tribes. We know that from a certain tribe. They had to be from the tribe of Levi and they had to be from the family of Aaron. That is how God controlled the selection process of who would be a priest. And so the priesthood in the Old Testament is called the Aaronic priesthood after Aaron, the first high priest, okay? The Aaronic priesthood. problem. Remember, Jesus was a Jew, stepped into Judaism in Israel to fulfill Judaism, and the book of Hebrews is telling us that he comes as the priest. Problem! Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't from the family of Aaron. Therefore, in the eyes of the Old Testament and biblical Judaism, he could not possibly be a legitimate priest or high priest. Now remember, the reason the book is written is to persuade this Hebrew Christian audience not to fall away from the faith. And because it had gotten hard to follow Jesus and people were being killed for following Jesus and they were being threatened for following Jesus, they were looking for any loophole in the identity of Christ. Any way they could rationalize anything less than 100% loyalty to Jesus. People do it all the time. That's what they were looking for. A way out, a loophole in the identity and the person of Jesus Christ. But here's the deal if it could be shown to them, if it could be shown to us in Scripture that Jesus really is who the Bible says he is, that he really is God incarnate and the King of kings, then that means that he is to be obeyed in all and any circumstances. That at no time does obedience become optional. He's to be obeyed when it's convenient and inconvenient. And following him, if he really is who he claimed to be, is absolute, an absolute necessity. You see, but they were looking for reasons to get out. And Jesus being from the wrong family and the wrong tribe to be a priest, there's a perfect one. It may have seemed to them that there was a breakdown in the logic of the New Testament. The author of Hebrews has been saying, Jesus is our priest and our great high priest. And they're beginning to realize, wait a minute. Not from the family of Aaron. not even from the tribe of Levi. Now, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And he was from the family of David. That meant that he could be a king. Because of his lineage, he couldn't be a priest But because of his lineage, he could be a king. Look what it says in verse 5 again. That quote from the Old Testament. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Several lessons ago, we went back and looked at that in context. It's Psalm 2. And it was a psalm that was given to a king at his coronation, but it was a prophetic messianic psalm. It had an immediate meaning and fulfillment for the coronation of a king, perhaps Solomon, but it had an ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And it says in Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 and 8, God speaking, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So this Psalm is understood messianically as speaking of Jesus stepping into humanity as a king of kings as a king over all nations. Now that will ultimately be realized by all the world at the second coming of Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, where it is written on him, King of kings and Lord of lords. So the Old Testament tells us prophesies about him that he would be the king over nations. He was descended from the right tribe and from the right family to be king. And when he comes to establish his kingdom on earth, he will have the title king of kings and lord of lords. But here's the problem in the Old Testament economy and the mind of the original audience. In ancient Israel, God created a balance of power. You see, nobody within Judaism could be both priest and and king. They came from separate lines, a lineage at that time going through the Father. They came from separate lines. One was the tribe of Judah, the kingly tribe, and the family of David, and one was the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. Therefore, God designed it, God saw to it that nobody could be both king and priest. But the whole book of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is our high priest, and it also says here in the verse 5 that he is our king realize how profound and even inconceivable that was in the mind of the Jew. Because they had in their scriptures, the Old Testament, examples of kings who tried to function like priests even for a moment. The first one was King Saul. King Saul was up on the high place, gathered there with Israel, and Samuel was late showing up, and he couldn't wait for Samuel. He just got tired of waiting and said, I'm king. Why am I going to wait for Samuel anymore? And he offered the sacrifices that were the job of the priest. And ultimately, that led to God rejecting him as king. We see in 1 Samuel. There was another king that tried to function in priestly duties. That was King Uzziah. And he burned the incense. In the holy place, and that was not the job of the king, that was the job of the priests, and the priests were appointed by God, and they and they alone were to do it. And so, what did God do? God struck King Uzziah with leprosy. Second Chronicles, chapter 26, chapter 26. Jesus is already established in the text as a king, but he's also seen as a priest but he's from the wrong family. What's the deal? The author of Hebrews has an ace in the hole. Verse six, just as God said in another passage, speaking of Christ, thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice previously in verse four, Aaron was mentioned, the Aaronic priesthood. Everyone reading this understood Jesus can't possibly be a part of that. He is called a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the ace in the back pocket of the author of Hebrews in explaining the identity and the theology of Jesus Christ. He's quoting here from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a famously messianic psalm. Jesus Christ himself used it to identify himself as Messiah and God in Matthew 22. And speaking to the religious leaders, he quoted Psalm 110 verse one that says, the Lord says to my Lord, deny says to Adonai, that's inter-Trinitarian communication. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Jesus' point to the religious leaders was that couldn't have been about written about David. That was written about me. And the author of Hebrews quotes verse 4 of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Who the heck is Melchizedek? (laughs) Well, chapter 7 tells us that Melchizedek was a priest before there was a priesthood. He was a king of Jerusalem before it was called Jerusalem. He was a king of righteousness. He was a king of peace. He was without father, without mother, without genealogy. He had no beginning. And Hebrews 7 says he had no end. And that he was a perpetual priest. And it is in this order that Jesus Christ is proclaimed a priest. And being in that order then, he is shown to the Hebraic mind and to Israel and to you and I to be superior to any priest that came before from the Aaronic line. And the author of Hebrews is the only New Testament author that pulls out the trump card of Melchizedek. He's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And only one time, in one book, eight times in one book, Melchizedek. And in this association, the book of Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is both priest and king. Therefore, in the person of Christ, they had something that nobody else could offer. Jesus was both priest and king, and he could fulfill both of those ministries perfectly. You see, when this bomb was dropped on the original audience, this was a radical revelation. This was a radical revelation. And it instantly removed any excuse the Jewish mind could conjure up not to follow Jesus. Pulled the rug out from underneath their feet, put the nail in the coffin to the identity of Christ Jesus as being king and priest perpetually, forever. Forever. Here's where we end. He's not just king and priest for them at that time. He's king and priest for you and I at this time. This is where the application comes in. This revelation was not for people that lived 2,000 years ago solely. It's for us today in your context, in America, in the coastland, in your homes, in your families, at your job. Jesus is to be priest and king. And he's not to be anything other or less in our life. He is priest and king. And you see, here's the deal. Humanity needs both of those. Humanity needs both. You see, we're not able to get to God, humanity in general, because we're separated by our sins. So Jesus comes as priest to bring us near to God. Isaiah 59 speaks of this profoundly. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But, In other words, here's the problem. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. This is God's commentary on humanity without a priest. God's commentary on humanity without a priest, separated, cut off, in trouble, defiled with blood, fingers full of iniquity, falsehood, and wickedness. It's not always the way humanity sees itself. But remember, if your opinion is in conflict with the word of God and the person of God, you're wrong. This is God's commentary on humanity without a priest. So humanity needs a priest to bring us near through the sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the only one. And then humanity needs a king because we are rebellious and we don't always know the right things to do. So Jesus comes as a king to rule over us and to lead us in the right way. The fact that we need a king is spoken of here again in Isaiah 59, starting in verse nine. This is God's commentary on humanity without a king. It says, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. In other words, we don't know the right thing to do. We hope for light, but we just see darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble in the middle of the day as if it were nighttime. Among those who are vigorous, we're like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there's none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before God and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. God's assessment of humanity without a king. Jesus comes to be the priest and the king on behalf of all of humanity because we're broken. We're lost. We're wrong. We're groping and in darkness, dead and dying. And Jesus Christ comes to restore relationships to bring newness of life. And through His finished work on the cross, His substitutionary atoning death, and His resurrection from the dead, we can be forgiven, and we could have new life, and we can be led in the right way. And this is a ministry of the person of Jesus Christ and nobody else, because nobody else in the history of the world has ever offered to pay your price. The wages of sin is death. Nobody has ever offered to die for you and then predicted their own resurrection from the dead and pulled it off other than the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, his words have validity beyond any other so-called religious figure. And when the Bible declares him to be the only great high priest and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that means that your knee bows. My knee bows. Humanity is to bow to the King. We are wrong and he is right on all matters. So because he's a priest, we need to know that we can be forgiven. If you haven't asked him to forgive you according to the work on the cross, you must do so today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And if you die apart from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, you will be eternally separated from him. It's a place called hell. If you have not trusted in his work upon the cross and asked him to forgive you, you must do that today. It's a simple prayer. You cry out in your heart saying, okay, God, I'm very aware right now that I've blown it that I'm a sinner, I've seen things wrong, you see things right, I'm wicked and I'm wrong, and I'm sorry, forgive me. God will forgive you, according to the work of Jesus Christ. And then what we need to do is maintain a humble attitude before the priest, a humble attitude before him, and also one of rejoicing. The prayer for some of us needs to be today, Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. If Christians aren't the happiest people on earth, we're in sin. We have been forgiven. There should be a continual attitude of joy and celebration, and we need to cultivate that, and we need to rout out shame, guilt, and condemnation from our lives. Because Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if the enemy's working you with that, or you're being stupid and religious and working yourself for that, you need to get over that. If you've repented before Jesus Christ, he's forgiven you. He's washed you and he's cleansed you white as snow. And he's given you a second chance in a brand new life. Receive it, walk in it, rejoice, and be humble and walk with thy God. And then finally, remember that he is the king. Are you being loyal to the king? That's a simple question for today. That's a point of application. Are you being loyal to the king? In your relationships, are you being loyal to King Jesus? In your marriage, are you being loyal to Jesus? In your stewardship as parents, are you being loyal to Jesus? In your workplace, are you being loyal to Jesus? In your ministry, are you being loyal to Jesus? He is the King of Kings. It leaves no option but for us to be loyal. Is he ruling in your life? If not, then the place of humanity, humble before God, is to rout out rebellion intentional, open-eyed, rebellious acts against God have need to be routed out of our lives. And understand that he's merciful because of the cross. And when we ask, he forgives and cleanses of all unrighteousness. Amen. Lord, thank you. Amen, Lord. Thank you for these incredible truths. Lord, I pray that these truths wouldn't be lost on anybody in this room that if there's any man or woman who has not repented for their sins before you, by grace, bring them to that place today, Lord. We repent for the arrogance of humanity. That we're so open in our rebellion. We ask that you cultivate humility in us as a church and as a people, Lord. That King Jesus, you be more and more exalted as king. And that we would see you more and more as priests. And it would be be easier for us to just receive your forgiveness, to walk in it, to rejoice in it. Your priestly work, it's completed. And yet it continues. It was once and for all to tell us that I prayed in full. But the effects are for us today. And continue right now. We are forgiven. Oh, Lord, thank you. Work that deep into our hearts your priesthood, your kingship. Come have grace and mercy on us and at the same time rule and reign in us, Lord. If you need help, the prayer team is here today. Feel free to come get on your face before God. You're accepted in his presence.